So there's a funny thing about Canadians. Well, there's many funny things about Canadians, but there's this funny thing about Canadians, especially those who live abroad. See, we, we have an internal Rolodex of every famous or influential Canadian that we can think of, and we bring it out whenever those celebrities come up in conversation. So William Shatner, he's Canadian. You should know that. Ryan Reynolds is Canadian. Robin Williams was Canadian as well. We just remember them because we want to bring them up. We tend to also keep a running tally of world records or notable international sports victories. Um, so did you know that for the longest time, the largest shopping mall was the West Edmonton Mall, which had everything from an indoor dolphin show to the largest indoor water park, active submarines that would take you through a sort of sea life scene. It had an amusement park with the largest indoor roller coaster. Did you know that the CN Tower in Toronto is, of course, taller than the Empire State Building? It's important when we compare them to the United States. We have to know that there's some things we win at there. Uh, did you know that Canada as a country has more coastline than any other nation? Very important. It's not just Canadians, though, of course. Think about facts like this. Did you know that the Christmas story was actually filmed in Cleveland? Did you know that Millionaire's Row used to attract all kinds of the richest people in the country to build homes right here in Northeast Ohio? Did you know that before the NFL was formed, the Cleveland Browns were actually a very successful football team? <laughs> remember that, right? On and on. We try and remember these details. Why? Why do we care about this? Why do I care that I grew up next to the largest shopping mall with the largest parking lot? I think deep down we want to feel valued, especially if we feel underappreciated or looked over. And we think the way to find value is to be known for victory, for greatness. We want to be winners. We want to be well-known or connected to well-known people. Christians do this all the time when we discover that a celebrity is an evangelical, right? Or someone makes the news. It's our way of saying, see, we have big, famous, important people too. That person's one of us, and we're all watching them on the screen. Look at how this notable Christian was invited to the White House. Look at how much we matter. And if we don't do it there, we maybe do it in a Christian celebrity industry and grab and power and influence that way. Do you know that author you're reading? Well, who wrote that book? Well, I, I know him. He went to my church. His kid was in my youth group. Or they have dinner at my house when they're in town. It's the same basic message over and over again, right? I matter because I'm connected to influence and money and power. I am important because either I've established myself and I'm the, the biggest kid on the block or I know the biggest kid on the block. <laughs> this desire for greatness and success is pretty common to all people. It's natural to being human. But when we start to dig into the Bible and especially into our passages this morning, we find that that chasing after power and celebrity or power and celebrity by association is not the way of Christ. Or maybe better put, success looks different for the Christian. The power and success that captivate our desires aren't by definition bad, but they aren't the point of the game. Chasing after them is like showing up at your annual work review and bragging about how sharp your pencils are and how clean you keep your desk. Neat, but not what we're looking for. <laughs> Victory in Christ, the end goal of our lives, looks very different from what we naturally chase after. This morning, I'm going to sometimes use the phrase worldly power or the world, but that's not to make it an us versus them kind of thing. When I talk about the world, I mean that there's a way that we strive for greatness that is natural and common to all of us. 
But our, our text this morning say we're called to strive for a different kind of victory. And because the victory is different, we're actually playing a different game. We're operating by a different set of rules. So what does a win look like? How do we see victory? Well, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul has this upside-down, counterintuitive picture to paint. So he addresses two categories, power and wisdom. So who is the wise person? Who is the powerful person? In his day, and probably in ours as well, at the top of the social hierarchy were scholars, the wisest and the strongest, your politicians, those who had influence in Rome. But Paul says God takes what seems to be foolish or what is on its face weak, and he chooses to show strength through it. He takes the things that are not, or maybe not yet, and he puts to shame the things that are. It's this upside-down way of looking at things, and this upside-down victory is exactly what is on display on the cross. Now, we've become so accustomed to the cross that we kind of lose what kind of symbol it actually is, right? Thousands of years removed from its casual or from its frequent use, it's now just the symbol of Christianity. So maybe you've heard someone say, it's like we're wearing an electric chair around our necks, or a guillotine, or perhaps a needle used for lethal injection. But those images would only remind us that the cross was an instrument of execution. But you can't understand the function of the cross in Roman society without appreciation of the shame that it brought. Better than an electric chair, maybe, maybe something that's a little bit harsh for us to hear, would be a lynching noose. The barbaric practice of lynching, as it existed for a very long time in the United States, wasn't just a chance to kill someone. It was a chance to humiliate someone, to make an example. It was a threat. It was a way to establish or enforce a hierarchy, those who had power and those who did not. In the same way, Roman crucifixion involved being paraded in front of a crowd, slowly dying on the side of a major road to show the world what a failure you were. Rome uses the cross, Rome used the cross for insurrectionists, for rebels, to show this is what it looks like when you oppose our power. It was the use of power to create shame and to establish or reestablish or remind you we are the winners, these are the losers. The losers were anybody who opposed Rome. You have to understand how strange it would sound for Paul's listeners, for the Roman world, to hear that we worship a crucified king. It is like running around with t-shirts that say, Cleveland Indians 2016 World Series Championship. A little bit too close to home, too soon, six and a half years. On its face, we watched the game, we watched them lose. No one's confused. I lived in Chicago at the time. I, it was not lost on me. We saw the loss, and yet people are running around saying, no, 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 that was a victory. We actually won that day. That's the kind of nonsense Paul's saying here. Paul, in what would have sounded insane, says, this is where we see victory, that God, cho God chose weak and foolish things to shame the strong and the wise, to show his own power and wisdom in human weakness, and so Paul invites his readers and maybe us, think about our own calling. Not many of us were wise or powerful or noble. We weren't called because we appeared to be winners. In fact, many of us were losers by the world's standards. 
But since we weren't called based on that natural picture of success, since we weren't called because we looked impressive, why do we orient ourselves towards fame and power and public adoration if that didn't matter to God? We see others winning the game and we want the glory too. But as our psalm pointed out, we shouldn't fret because others seem to be succeeding. We shouldn't try to copy their patterns in order to gain success. They are winning at their game, but that's not the game we're playing. We're not playing the who can have the biggest house, who can get the biggest following, who can be welcomed in by the most famous people, which country has more comedians born there. This is not the game we're playing. This is not the win. So even if we recognize we're playing a different game, we can end up trying to make up our own rules, right? We know things aren't right, so we say, oh, I'll figure out how to do this. Okay, I'm not, I'm not playing the world's game for success, but I, I'm going to figure out how to do it. I'll, I'll decide how I get to God's victory. But in our Micah passage, we have the, the first five verses where God lays out a case against the people of Israel. And having been put in their place, they, they move on to an appeal. Okay, okay, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? How do I make this right? Okay, we're in the wrong. What should I do? Well, the verses that follow offer up these increasing exaggerations. Should I give burnt offerings? Thousands of rams? Rivers of oil? Even my firstborn? Probably reminding us of Abraham and Isaac. What should I? I'll offer anything. I'll do it all. No. The message here and a consistent message throughout the Old Testament prophets is that God does not care about worship when it isn't accompanied by right living. God does not want our worship, doesn't care about it. Even the worship that he commanded them to do, he is uninterested in it without right living behind it. We may love worship, but God prefers righteousness. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so it gets summed up in this verse that many of us have memorized, right? He has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. When things aren't working out, the psalmist says, trust in the Lord and do good. You don't have to win by any means necessary. Sometimes I think we hear what God tells us and we act sort of like we're Jesus' hatchet man. We say, all right, God, you look the other way and I'm going to do what needs to be done so you don't get your hands dirty. I know you told me to live a certain way, but, but I know this world and I know how things actually work. So you turn away and I'm going to do what needs to be done and we'll get there, right? God isn't calling us to victory and then say, figure it out on your own. In fact, he doesn't even call us to worry about the victory. He calls us to a different kind of life and then promises a different kind of victory on the other side. So I want to spend some time now reflecting on the kind of life we're called to by looking at the Beatitudes from Matthew 5. Through these eight statements, we get this remarkable and very different and very strange picture of a good life, of a blessed life. I'll start by saying that each of these could be a sermon in and of themselves. And if you're looking for a piece of scripture to meditate on, maybe memorize and repeat, maybe as a Lenten discipline, this would be a pretty good place to start. We call them the Beatitudes just because that's the Latin word that gets translated blessed, which is what starts every statement. Now, the word blessed here, or blessed, it can mean happy, but it's not just a feeling. It's not just you're going to feel good when this happens. There's something deep and abiding about the happiness that comes here. 
Sometimes people talk about the difference between happiness and joy. The Bible doesn't always make that distinction, but that idea of there's a deep abiding blessedness when these statements describe you. The first being, blessed are the poor in spirit. This phrase lines up with Micah's call to walk humbly with God. Being poor in spirit means that we aren't presumptuous in our walk with God. We don't come to God assuming we know what we are doing, but come with a poverty of spirit that looks up to God like a child asking for what we need. Blessed are you when you start open-handed waiting to receive, when you start with the assumption that you don't have all the answers. Blessed are you when your walk with God starts with open hands. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I find this is a promise that, that I naturally pray into all the time when I'm dealing with sadness or tragedy or loss. See, our natural desire for worldly victory causes us to jump over sadness and sorrow. They aren't very useful. They don't help us get ahead. They don't do us a lot of good. So let's just get that behind us. Let's get through the grief as quickly as possible. But mourning is the correct response to catastrophe. It's right and even, I would say, good for us to mourn when sad things happen. How could we do anything else in the face of great sorrow? How could we look at the world around us in the face of hunger and famine, injustice? When I look out and see the incredible epidemic of depression and anxiety among adolescents, the sheer weight that the next generation carries, and how could we not spend a little bit of time mourning and grieving? We pray for a day when everything will be well, when all will be ultimately comforted, when Jesus wipes every tear from our eyes, when all things are set right. And we're promised that in our mourning, there is some comfort that comes even now. But blessed are you when you do not run away from the sad things in life. You cannot be comforted if you don't mourn. You can't receive God's comfort if you don't come to him broken in your mourning. You are blessed happy when you look honestly at the brokenness and give it space to be properly grieved. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, Jesus may even be quoting the psalm we read this morning, Psalm 37, where we're told the meek will inherit the land. Meekness is very bad career advice. It's not effective. No one goes into their work and says, you know what, this, this person over here, they're, doing, they're just keeping to themselves. No, we, we like go-getters. We like someone who's out there. You know, I like his moxie. That's part of the problem, right? Bravado works. Bravado is effective. Boisterous people, bragging people, these are who get ahead, right? Meekness will not get you ahead, but it will put you closer to the kingdom of God. Because a mar life marked by meekness is a life in which we don't get ahead of ourselves, we don't expand our ego so big that we leave God behind. Because we live in a world of self-promotion, of self-branding, where acknowledging frailty or weakness is seen as a flaw, or it's done strategically to gain more followers, right? If you use a strategic confession of, oh, I'm actually a little bit broken, everyone goes, oh, they're like one of us. Let's lift up their platform a little bit higher. We weaponized meekness works. But true meekness doesn't actually get you a whole lot ahead. Meekness isn't a lack of confidence. It's a refusal to believe your own hype. It's a willingness to, to say, 
yeah, I have some flaws. Yeah, I'm not going to put myself out there. Because a life going the other way leaves no room for mistakes, leaves no room for confession. And when something is hurled against you, you're instantly defensive, right? Because your ego takes over. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Deep down, we ought to desire for the world to be right and for evil to fail. But it can be hard to know when we want righteousness or when we want personal vindication. That's why we've already got meekness and poorness in spirit, right? We've already got some setup here to help us. One way to test your hunger and thirst for righteousness is to try and think whether you still want the righteous outcome if it doesn't profit you anything. If your righteous outcome also happens to benefit you a whole lot, maybe it's still righteous, but maybe there's some important questions to ask. Even still, if it means you lose something, that's a good test. If your desire for righteousness means you come out poorer, weaker, at a disadvantage, but it's still a thing you desire, that's a good indication that the outcome is actually righteous. It's easy to advocate for life when we don't have to look at the overburdened foster care system in the face, right? It's easy to contend for life if we don't actually care about adoptions. That's an easy place because then we don't have to think about it and we can just keep ourselves apart from it. Righteousness that actually requires a, maybe an overburdened foster system to, I don't know, have more resources to pay for it. <laughs> what if being champions for life meant your taxes go up? Because suddenly the state, which now has more kids to take care of, needs a little bit more revenue. We can still be all for it, but let's remember it might cost us something. In Micah, we read that God asks us to do justly, or as our translation this morning, do justice. Not just, hey, when you're acting, do a just thing, but actually seek out and do justice. And this kind of thing is authority used rightly for the sake of others. That's why God gives us influence, not for ourselves, but for the sake of others. So as opposed to a game in which victory is seen as when we get more, God's kingdom, the way of the cross, sees victory when our power is used outward for the sake of other people. Now, as if to balance out any of this zeal we might have as we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we're immediately told that blessed are the merciful. Mercy isn't just soft nicest, niceness. Mercy isn't just being a doormat. You can only show mercy when the right to be loved has been forfeited. You can only show mercy when there's an offense, when you have every right to show wrath instead. That's when you can show mercy. Micah says we are to love mercy. In the prayer of humble access that we often say before communion, we pray to our God whose character, or as the prayer used to read, his nature is always to show mercy. Offering mercy and grace are quite possibly the most countercultural things we can do. Refusing to punch back, refusing to look for politicians or mayors or prosecutors or talking heads or someone to punch back at our enemies is a pretty strange thing. Not seeking revenge, not delighting in someone's downfall. Importantly, in being the merciful, we might lose opportunities to get ahead. Showing mercy can get you hurt, but that's the point. After all, we are walking in Jesus' footsteps, and if we do so, we will get burned by choosing mercy because it certainly happened to him. Jesus, very aware of what he was going into, was merciful, loved before he was loved, loved even when it wasn't merited. 
That's the kind of mercy that God shows. That's the way of the cross, the upside-down way of living that we're called to. Blessed are the pure in heart, those who are not divided and begrudging in their obedience, those who are single-minded in their pursuit of God, not naivete, not sort of nonsense, but a choice to cultivate virtue instead of cynicism. It is easy to be pure in heart when, when you are young, when you have not seen as much as you see when you get older. And as you get older, it is much easier to be cynical. And being pure in heart doesn't mean you stop acknowledging the brokenness of the world. Again, blessed are those who mourn. But while you are mourning, the pure in heart say, there is, there is a God who cares. And I'm going to stare into his eyes and let him be the one who guides me rather than being bogged down by the weight of the world. Blessed are the peacemakers. I frequently have to remind myself that there's a difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping, right? Peacemaking is breaking down walls of hostility, reconciling opposing forces. Peacekeeping is about using strength to enforce peace. Jesus offers a peace very different from the Caesars of the world. The cross was used as a way to peacekeep until it was made to be a peacemaker. The work of Jesus is to transform the instrument of torture to an instrument of reconciliation. The victory of the cross makes peace by being on the receiving end of lethal force rather than using it. And the way that leads to abundant life makes peace through self-sacrifice. Which leads us to blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, when others speak falsely against you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted because you've been doing these things, when your dedication to a different way of life puts you at odds with the powers that only understand victory through strength. Now, it's not persecution when Christians are maligned for how we've treated people we disagree with. It's not persecution when we're accused of saying we speak the truth in love, but actually we've just been yelling through bullhorns. There are countless people who left the church because leaders said they cared about the least and the lost and then they covered up abuse. Some people might hate us because they hate our message. Absolutely. But many people hate the church because the church has been hypocritical. Because they see what we proclaim in the victory of the cross and then behave as, still, as if we are still playing the world's game. Because I can stand up here and talk all about self-sacrifice and then sometimes we go out and do the opposite. Blessed are those who mourn, maybe at our own sins as well. See, the way we play the game matters because it speaks to the kind of victory we're aiming for. What kind of victory has been on display when churches care more about power and prestige and protecting institutions than those who have been wounded? When churches care for our, our egos and our reputations and we're willing to overlook unrighteousness for just a, just a little morsel of power, just a little taste of influence believing that the ends justify the means. When we all play by the world's rules, chasing the world's victories, all while preaching our crucified Messiah, maybe, maybe some of those harsh words are earned. Maybe it's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. It's so tempting to say, yes, but, right? You hear the Sermon on the Mount, and this is a high bar, and so it's so easy to say, yes, but. Yes, we ought to turn the other cheek, but, but who will punch back if it's not me? Yes, we have to be peacemakers, but one swift strike now will stop violence in the future, so it's good, right? Using violence to end violence is good, right? Yes, I'm called to be meek, but if I don't self-promote and rise to the top, someone else will. 
Isn't it better for a Christian to be wielding the power than a non-Christian? Can't we just grasp at the world's power and wisdom so we have enough influence to tell more people about the good news of the cross? Isn't it good when we play by the world's rules and get to the top and then we, and then we can tell people about forgiveness, right? This is the good way. This morning, God's word calls us out. Do not do the things they do. Don't fret about the wicked. Others seem to be getting ahead, and it may look like the way of the Beatitudes is not going to get you to victory. But that's only if we forget what real victory looks like. We can't abandon the way of Christ to try and accomplish the work of the gospel. The way of Christ is the work of the gospel. Blessed is what the winning the game looks like. Now, I'm going to be the very first to admit that my life does not perfectly line up here. Holding up my own life next to the Beatitudes, next to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, is not comfortable. I recognize that I will likely fail in the future. I wrote that sentence on maybe Friday or Saturday morning, and then Saturday afternoon, I just had a moment where I, I discovered myself longing after the world's victory, longing after influence, bemoaning that someone else was getting a certain kind of recognition that I actually wanted. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote this, this sentence, and then like in the future, three hours later, it happened, <laughs> right? I will probably give a yes but and allow the ends to justify the means. But let's not call evil good. When we feel like we have to choose the lesser of two evils, Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking it was good all along. We still live in a broken world, and sometimes we're not presented with the good and the bad option. We're presented with, with two difficult options, with two bad options. Sometimes we're not really given the choice to be people of the Sermon on the Mount. But this isn't a list of spiritual gifts where some of us are called to be peacemakers and others are called to mourn. These beatitudes, these blesseds, are for all of us. Micah's summary of what God has called us to do and be, doing justice, loving mercy, walking humbly, this is for all of us. And we're going to fall short, but our eyes must be fixed on what a truly good life looks like. That's actually where I want us to, to close and turn our attention to. This is not, well, hopefully it's not, a law sermon with me wagging my finger at all of us. I, we should not leave in despair. We'll save that for Lent. We've got a couple weeks left. <laughs> well, I'll bring the despair in Lent. Here's what I think God wants for all of us, is not only to examine our actions and see what individual things we need to change. I think there's a different thing. Sometimes, if you imagine our lives, our actions as a sort of head, heart, and hands. A sermon, I'm telling you some ideas, this is head stuff. And hands, how are we supposed to act? But, but today, I want to challenge us to look at our hearts, because sometimes we don't even properly know what the change would look like. What we need is what I once heard called alternative plausibility structures, a totally different vision of what is possible, an alternative picture of how the world could be. We need to start letting God sanctify our imaginations, to let our, our, our imagination of what could be for ourselves, for our church, for our neighbors, let that be seen through the lens of the victory on the cross, the foolishness and the shame of it all. Now, part of that work happens when we remember how God has done things in the past. Micah tells his readers to remember the works of God so we might know them to experience them. Remind yourself through the biblical stories, through your own stories, that God has been faithful. But we don't do this to predict God's methods. 
In fact, if anything, looking back at the stories of, of our own past and biblical past reminds us that God's going to work in ways that we cannot possibly anticipate. We don't get to choose how God is going to move. We're simply called to trust him and be faithful in the next step. And then we sit with this picture of what it means to be faithful, and we let it slowly become the foundation of our sense of what life can be. The good life looks different for a Christian. Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, and especially in the Beatitudes, invites us to paint a picture of a different world, a different set of victory conditions. The good life is not a house, a yard, 2.5 kids, a picket fence, and pleasant, carefree days. These might happen to you, and rejoice if they do. They are blessings. But achieving them doesn't mean you've lived the life you've called to live, and not achieving them doesn't mean you've failed. Suburban thriving is neither bad nor good. It's just it's sharpening your pencils. It's neat, great to have it, but that's not the point. The good life looks like one where you've had the chances to be meek, and merciful to do justice, to mourn. When you come to God open-handed and he sends you away with blessings you didn't expect, that life might seem really difficult. In fact, it is, except that in Christ, the promises, those second parts of the Beatitudes, they're all coming true. We find that when we're at the heart of what Jesus is doing, we are fulfilled in a way that we couldn't possibly be when we're playing the world's game. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who understood this way of the cross really well, said that there's one place that all the Beatitudes are found. He says this, Clearly there is one place and only one, and that is where the poorest, meekest, and most sorely tired of all men is to be found, on the cross at Golgotha. The fellowship of the Beatitudes is the fellowship of the crucified. With him it has lost all, and with him it is found all. From the cross there comes the call, blessed, blessed. And so it is in that one place we turn our eyes and our hopes so that we can be directed to a totally different way of living. As our colleague said, since we're surrounded by dangers that would tempt us to turn away from the folly of the cross, not just its power to forgive sins, but its power to upend and reorient our whole lives, my prayer for us, for me this morning, is that God would give us a fresh vis vision of his kingdom and what life lived in it may look like that these blesseds would disturb us and prod us out of one perspective of success and victory into an image of a life well-lived that looks like foolishness and weakness except for those who are being saved. May we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. May we be the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, peacemakers, merciful, pure in heart. And when dedication to these commitments, to this way of life, brings us into conflict with the powers and principalities of this world, may we know that we are blessed in that resistance, in that persecution. May God change our perspective so that we might live into the reality of heaven, which is breaking into earth even now, which began on the cross and echoes and reverberates on until he comes again. Amen.